It's been four years, hasn't it? Four years since the London Olympics. And four years has passed, and now what's begun? Well, it's the Olympics uh, in Rio. So what about the last four years? What do you think characters like Mo Farrow, what do you think Usain Bolt, and what do you think people like Jessica Ennis, what have they been doing over the last four years? Usain Bolt in, Usain Bolt in London ran 100 metres in 9.7 seconds. Okay? Amazing. He's the fastest man on the earth. He won the gold medal. And he ran for 9.7 seconds, but it has been 126,144,000 seconds since he ran that 9.7 seconds to win the race. Uh, what's he been doing in those 126 million and above uh, seconds? He has been doing the same things again and again and again. You see, if you were to be an Olympic champion like the same Bolt, you have to train all the time, every day, three times a day, endless repeated exercises, getting the start right, improving the middle section, kind of doing the best for the finish, again and again and again, repetitive, dull, boring, monotonous exercises, again and again, again and again and again and again and again and again for four years. You just do non-stop the same things for four years. Are you getting bored of again and again? Yeah, it's really, that's what it's like. If you find school dull or your work dull and boring, you try being an Olympic athlete. It's so boring. Did you know that the endless repetition of training is the major thing that makes most athletes pull out? They can't cope with it, but those who win know that's the one thing you've got to do. The same thing again and again and again and again. Psalm 119, look at it, Uh, have it open in front of you. So Bible's open, and uh, why don't you turn to page 617 if you're not there already. Psalm 119, this chapter of the Bible that we're going to be looking at uh, for these six weeks over the summer, provides the same challenges that an Olympic athlete has. Psalm 119, flick through it, you'll see it's the longest chapter in the whole Bible. It's the longest chapter. It has 176 verses, and that's more verses than some of the books of the New Testament, many of the books. But those letters, you see, that you might look at in the New Testament, they've got lots of variety. There's lots of things going on in them, lots of arguments and lots of things that the writer is telling us. The problem that you have in Psalm 119 is it says the same thing again and again and again and again and again and again and again. You get the idea. Let me show you in the chapter itself. Let's have a look. I've got four quick points to introduce you to the whole kind of section of uh, this this, uh, chapter. Firstly, Psalm 119 has lots of repetitive words. Lots of words that repeat themselves. It's dominated by eight words. Eight words uh, that the singer or the songwriter, remember this is a song, okay? 
He uses his, uh, to, these eight words to make his point again and again and again. And you'll see them. Have a look down at verses 1 through to verse 8. Parents, help, help kids if they're looking. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according. Now the word he repeats is the law there. The law of the Lord. In verse 2, look at it. There's a word, his statutes. Verse 3, his ways. Verse 4, you'll see the word precepts. Don't worry about what all these words mean. I'll show you in a second. Your decrees in verse 5, your commands in 6, your righteous laws in verse 7, your decrees again in verse 8. Now there are a few more. Only a few more, but they're variations on the same words. See, what the writer is doing there is he's composing this massive song about the Word of God. It's a very long song about the Word of God, but it's a song about the Word of God. Now, that would be okay, but what about all the repetition? Have you ever been to an art gallery? Anyone been to an art gallery? I'm... Not the biggest fan, but I've been to a few art galleries. I've been to the Tate Modern. That's on the south bank of the river, up, in the tem- up on the Thames. And I've been there twice. The first time I went, I went with my wife, Sarah, and I think we went around the whole gallery and, and out in about half an hour. And we kind of went, yeah, that was nice, and then went for a coffee somewhere or something like that. The second time I went... I went with a guy who's not here today, but his name's Ali Gordon, and he's one of the leaders in the church here. But the thing about Ali is that he's a professional artist. He paints for a living, and he's very good at it. He's actually selling paintings at the moment over in America, and he's very, very gifted, and he teaches about modern art. I went with him to the Tate Modern. A slight mistake, but I went, and, and there I was at two paintings for three hours, as he talked through every detail about the artist. And, oh my goodness, it was amazing. I learned a lot. I began to understand the art more. I, I began to appreciate it more. And even love it, dare I say it. You see, Psalm 119, it's really repetitive. And I want to say to you very gently, get over that to begin with. Because the singer isn't dull. He wants you to understand God more. He wants you to appreciate God more. He wants you to love God more. And the way that we're to do that, as the psalm makes clear, is as we understand, appreciate and love the word of God more. So there's lots of repetition, okay? Eight recurring words, but all of those words are word of God words. Now, second point, very quickly, is that there's a really fun structure. There's a playful structure throughout the whole of the book. Now, have a look down at the psalm in front of you, and look just before verse 1. Can you see that word? There's a funny little squiggle, and then there's a funny word, which is aleph. Can you see that written down there? Now, that is the first symbol, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Okay? And it's the letter aleph. In our country, in English, we have A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and so on. In the Hebrew alphabet, it goes Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, and so on. And you can follow through in the sections on, in the, in the, um, in, throughout the psalm. Do you see that? Point it out, parents, if you, you can show your kids there. And you see, looking before it, you'll see each section 
follows, uh, has a letter before it, and it goes through the Hebrew alphabet. All 22 letters. We have 26. They have 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. But this song particularly is what we call an acrostic. Now, don't worry about that word, what it means. It basically means that every, um, in each section in the Hebrew language, each line of that section, so have a look again down at verse 1 to 8. In the Hebrew, in the original language, every line would begin with that letter Aleph. And in the second section, every line of those eight lines would begin with the letter Beth, and so on. Now, it doesn't work out like that once translated into English, but what the songwriter is doing, simply, he's having lots of fun. He's looking at this and going, oh, I'm going to make a bit of a kind of a playful structure here. Now, remember, there are eight repeated words to describe the word of God, and he plays around with that in writing them in this structure to help his listeners to say, hey, look, the word of God is, is utterly wonderful. And it's pointing to us to, to show us how wonderful God is as well. So it's this playful structure. And with all these words, it could be true that... How, no, sorry. With all these kind of words and all this structure, could it possibly be that there is a missing word? A missing word? Well, I think there is. It seems to be there is a word that is not in this psalm. All the word of God words, the statutes, the precepts, the commands, that I think, and many people think, it is pointing to one word. Slightly different views, and it's all going towards this central one word. And I think that central kind of main word of this whole psalm is this word, covenant. Now that word never appears in the whole of this psalm. But I think it's where every single one of those words that we've mentioned in that structure is pointing to. Why? In the Bible, okay, the, the strap line, the, the, the description of what the covenant is, is kind of put, said this way. God says, you will be my people and I will be your God. Now the covenant, and kids, I'll ask you this later, the covenant is a relationship. It's a relationship that God starts with his people. And it's a gift of grace. They don't deserve it. But it's a relationship that God starts with his people. He brings them out of slavery in Egypt. You can read about that in Exodus. And he establishes this covenant relationship with them. He will be their God. And they will be his people. And in that relationship, God says, I'm going to make some promises to you. This is the kind of God I'm going to be. And the people have some responsibilities of being the people of God. He shows them what that relationship look like, should look like. But why is Psalm 119 all about this covenant relationship between God and his people? Well, firstly, because the name that God uses of himself in this psalm is his covenant name, Lord, which in the Hebrew is Yahweh. You might have heard that. Secondly, the covenant relationship between God and his people has requirements. And the language used throughout the whole Bible of those requirements is always described in terms of obeying his commandments, his precepts, his judgments, his statutes. All those words, those eight words that repeat again and again and again throughout the whole psalm. 
Either you're going to follow his statutes, his commands, his precepts, and all those kind of things, or you're going to reject them. If you want to be in a covenant relationship with God, this is the way. So the language used in Psalm 119 is covenant-keeping language. Look look down at verse 2 and 3 of our psalm, and you'll get the idea. Look, it says, blessed or happy are those who keep his statutes, one of those words, and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. Again, one of those words. See, as Christians, we are in a covenant relationship with God. Now, we are now under what's called the new covenant because of what Jesus has done for us by dying on a cross in our place. But, but the language of covenant keeping is the same language. We either follow God's ways in response to the grace that he's poured out on us, saving us for heaven in Christ, or we reject his ways. That is, we reject the covenant. See, Psalm 119 is therefore all about this covenant of grace. The covenant relationship established by God, this free, undeserved gift of kindness, poured out on any one of us who would put our trust in Jesus. Psalm 119, you must not understand, it's not a tick list for you to go, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, I must not do that, I must not do that. Rather, it is under grace, something that we are called to in response to all that God has done, live in a responsive and rejoicing way. It's an encouragement more than a stick. So that's the missing word, covenant. Lastly, very quickly, the tune of grace. Though we are reading this psalm, recognise it is a song. It was created to be sung. We must continually remind ourselves of this because any biblical song, you've got to ask the questions. First and foremost, do you understand it? Secondly, because it's song, it's got to go much, much further. You've also got to ask, do you, essentially, do you feel it? Does it stir you? But also, thirdly, you've got to ask, the third question is, with any biblical song, you've got to ask the question, am I willing to sing it? And if we get to the end of these next six weeks looking at this psalm and simply understand it better, we have failed as a church. We mustn't just understand it. It must stir our hearts and we must want to live it out. Be able to sing it in our lives. Understanding it, of course, requires hard work, but we must allow ourselves to be moved by it and change accordingly. So there's four quick things. Repetitive words, there's a playful structure, there's a missing word, there's a tune of grace. I hope that provides us a bit of a foundation before we dig into it in a moment. We'll see some amazing depths in this chapter. And I hope it excites us of the word of God, but much more importantly, of the God of the word, our Heavenly Father. We're going to sing again. As we sing, speak, O Lord. Let's stand and sing together. I've titled this simply, Walking in the Way of the Word. Walking in the way of the word. Now this psalm begins, this chapter begins, as the whole book of the psalms begins. It's very much like Psalm 1 in many ways. Most obviously because it's showing us the way, you see the word used, of blessing in verse 1 and verse 2. That is, 
Blessing is true happiness in God's sight, both now and for eternity. Let's read verse 1 and 2. Look at it. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord or the word of God. Blessed are those who keep his statutes, the word of God, and seek him with all their hearts. Now, you see, what the, what the songwriter's doing here, the first three verses, look down and see those, the songwriter's reminding himself of truth, what he understands about God and living with God in that covenant relationship. Now, all the verses that follow, the 173, pretty much every single one, are his response to those three verses, those first three verses. So these are quite foundational verses, these first three verses. And they speak of blessing. Now, there's only one kind of person. Who's the kind of person that knows this blessing? The psalmist says, it's there, isn't it? It's the blameless one. That is, the one who walks according to the word of God, or the law of the Lord here. And similarly, in verse 2, it says, it says a very similar thing wholehearted response to the word of God, he's saying that, is the absolute essential if you're going to know blessing. Happiness in God's sight. See, right from the go, the songwriter's making it really clear, isn't he? It's helpful for us that the one who will know blessing is the one who actively walks every day in the way of God's word, obeying God's word. Now, of course, ultimately... We know blessing in and through what Jesus has done for us in his life and his substitutionary death and his life-giving resurrection. But if we sit back and go, well, hey, Jesus has done all the work. I can kind of relax now and, and kind of do nothing. No, we have a very limited view of blessing if that is, the, if that is what we think. And therefore, as a result, we'll have very limited joy in our lives. Here, have a look. Look at all the active words. Again, a bit grammatical here, but look at the active words. There's a way in verse 1. A walk. We are to keep. To seek in verse 2. We are to follow in verse 3. Do you see all those active words? Blessing is found, you see, before God in this life and for eternity in active obedience to the word of God. Look at verse 4. You've laid down your precepts. Again, a word of God word there. You've laid down your word of the word. They are to be fully obeyed. Don't get hung up, though, on that word blameless. I know that could be, could be a problem. Look at verse 1 again. We can be blameless, but that doesn't mean that we're sinless, that we do nothing wrong. To, to be blameless is just to have integrity. By that we mean you're the same on the inside as you are on the outside. It's more about the direction of our lives. Job, for example, one of the characters in the Old Testament, in Job chapter 1, verse 1, he is said to be blameless, but we know from the whole of the book he wasn't sinless. He did things wrong, just like you and I do. But he was described as blameless. So the songwriter is beginning, uh, showing us the way of blessing for the believer. It is living, it is walking, it is keeping and following the way of the word. It is active, blameless obedience. That is the way of blessing and happiness in this life. And that's the way God has created us. 
The second half of this uh, first section, look at that then. Verse 5 to 8. Most of these little sections are split into two halves, like a game of football. You know, two halves, okay? And verse 5 to 8, what, what the writer's doing there, he's beginning his response to what he's stated as truth in those opening verses. So we look at it, very quickly run through it. The songwriter longs that he could walk in the way of the word, so he prays and he sings. Look at verse 5. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. I wonder, doesn't matter what age you are, is that what's going on in your heart every morning? Is that your song each morning? Oh, that my ways were steadfast, obeying your word, God. I wonder what you long for each day. Well, verse 6 shows the heart of the songwriter. Look at verse 6. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider your commands. See, what he's saying there is he doesn't want to be exposed as a fraud before God. He must keep his eyes fixed on walking God's ways according to his word. He wants a life where he's not said, you're a hypocrite. Look at verse 7. I will praise you with an upright heart, he says, as I learn your righteous laws. Does he do this all the time? What do you think? Well, no. But he prays and sings that he will. Look what he says. I will praise. I will. I will. I will. I want that to be the case. And finally he sings in verse 8. Look at it. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. A great preacher just preached just over over the hill here. A guy called Charles Spurgeon in in the 19th century, in the 18th century. He wrote beside this verse in his Bible, he said this, He trembles, speaking of the songwriter, lest he should be left to himself. What he means by that is this, the songwriter knows that the way to God's eternal love, to be with him in heaven for eternity, and not to be left alone or forsaken is the word there. Well, the only way you get that is to walk in obedience to God's word. This is not a song of boring duty. I must do this, I must do this. This is a song that points us to come to a place where we find eternal life, happiness and blessing forever. And it points us to the word of God, right in your hands now. It points us to the word because that is God's given way to know him and be saved by him. So I ask this question, just to be finished. Can you sing these verses confidently? Can you? Is this what your heart wants to sing? Are you so determined to praise God and obey him? Well, if not, then your prayer, I hope, will be that through his word and by his spirit, he will begin to change your heart and work in you now. So blessing comes walking in the way of the word. Secondly, verse 9 to 16, we're on Beth, that little section there now. I've titled this, The Word in Our Hearts and on Our Lips. Each section isn't unrelated to the ones around it, okay? They're following on. Have a look down, you'll see. We've seen a way of blessing, the way of the word, but if you're anything like me and the songwriter, you'll be a feeling, an inevitable feeling of doubt. Are you looking at it and go, I'm not sure this is possible for me? This is hard, isn't it? Which is why the songwriter now goes for your heart and then onto your lips. And again, there's a section with two halves. He wonders, look at, I'll just run through this really fast. Look at verse 9. He wonders whether he can be pure 
He knows he's prone to wander in verse 10. Have a look at that. And also he's prone to sin as well in verse 11. Now change comes in his life through the words that you are reading right now. As they come into our hearts. Now what did the songwriter do? If you want change in your life before God to to, to know blessing and to be obedient, what do you do? Do you sit in a room cross-legged and get a candle out and sort of meditate and sort of empty your mind of everything? No. That's not what the songwriter does. It's wonderful. It's a very kind, it's a great kindness from God. God provides words to fill our minds and our hearts so that they might be changed. And the songwriter, he knows this. So look at verse 12. He praises God for it. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your word, your decrees. He longs to learn. Because he longs for his heart to be changed, formed to be more like God. That is God's way. Change comes through his word. I don't know if you... Have you ever seen someone... um, I've had the privilege of giving out Bibles to to groups of people who have never, ever owned a Bible in their language that they can speak. Have you ever seen that? I've worked with Bible translators and you you stand at the back of your truck and you, you give out Bibles. And it's the first time these people, these Christians, have ever received a Bible in their own language. And what do they do? Do they stick it on their bedside table and never open it? No. They they, they literally, the moment you give it to them, they open it up and they start reading. And you can't talk to them. They're just like, no, I'm reading this. No, you're not talking to me. I've got it. It's like, this is the most precious thing they've got. It's extraordinary. I just wonder, can you sing these words? Look at it. It says, teach me your decrees. Are you that hungry for God's word? Do you really want that? Do you want your heart to be transformed by God through his word? It shouldn't end there. It never should. God's word changes hearts, but it also should bubble out onto our lips as well. And that's where the second half goes. Look at verse 13. With my lips I recount, I, I speak, I rejoice, verse 14, in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. And we know. Don't you know how much people love to rejoice about their riches? Isn't that what everyone talks about around here? It's pretty much, I think, what everyone talks about. It's not just wealth. It's, hey, have you looked at my car? Have you seen my lovely house? Look at my wonderful clothes. Look at the schools that I go to. Look at this and look at the holidays I've been on and so on. It's all great riches. Do they hear? Do they hear anything else on your lips? I wonder. And if they don't, it's probably because you've ignored verse 15 and 16. Look at that. I meditate on your precepts, your your word again, and consider your ways. I delight in your word. I will not neglect your word. Here's a a little quiz for you. Consider this, okay? It's a kind of blankety blank. It's an old, old quiz game, but don't worry about that. Fill in the blank. I delight in and will not neglect blank. What would you put at the end there? I delight in and will not neglect Blank. Is that, what is that for you? Football? The Olympics? What is it? Money? What is the blank? 
If it is anything other than the word of God, I delight in and will not neglect the word, then please realise that you are missing out. So we've seen walking in the way of the word. The word is to be on our hearts and our lips. But it's a bit of a reality check now. Because now we get to the third one. That is verse 17 to 34. And we see the writer delighting in the word despite the circumstances that he's facing. He delights. But life is tough. It's a big dose of reality. Now things are tough for the songwriter. He's facing opposition. Look at verse 19. He's a stranger, he describes himself. Verse 22, look what he's there. He's facing scorn, contempt. Verse 23, slander. Basically, he's been called names. He's been told how horrible he is. Imagine the music to this part of the song. What would it sound like? Would it be joyful? No, it'd be somber. It'd be sad. It'd be hard. And what he's experiencing is the natural outworking of the previous two sections. That is, it's what you and I experience every day. If you live out in obedience to God's word, if you live that out in your life, what are you going to face? You're going to face some tough questions at some time. You're going to face some mockery from your friends. Some of your friends are going to say, what did you do on Sunday? And you say, I went to church. And they say, oh, you're stupid. Why do you waste your time with that? We will face scorn, contempt and slander. You may have even done something really nice for someone once. Have you ever done that? And they look at you and go, you've only done that because you're a Christian and you think that I really want that. And, and, And then they hate you for it. That happens all the time. We will face opposition, but what do we pray when life is tough and when opposition comes? Do we pray things like this? Oh God, my my friends have have called me names. They've they've been really horrible to me. Please take them from me or or take, you know, stop them saying those words. It's too tough. It's too nasty. Well, look what the songwriter prays and thinks. And ask yourself, is this what you pray? In verse 17, he prays, That while he lives, he will obey God's word. He doesn't pray for more years to live. He just says, God, I'm in your hands. And just uh, while I'm in your hands, while I'm living, just help me to be faithful. He doesn't pray for things to get easier. He just prays that he can trust God in and through that difficult time. Look at verse 18. It's extraordinary and it's key to this section. He says, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. That is, he needs his eyes open. He needs to be able to understand the word clearly. He wants to be consumed. He wants to just go, I want the word of God in my life. I've got to open my eyes. Oh my God, you've got to open my eyes so that I might understand it. Why? Because he knows that the word of God is the only reliable place he can turn when things get tough. I hope you know that too. He needs wisdom to get through those difficult times. And in the last couple of verses, he just simply turns to his own response. Again, how do you respond? If, if some of your friends are cruel to you about being a Christian, about going to church, how do you respond? Do you pray, oh God, please kind of like 
get them out of the way. They're horrible. No, he doesn't pray that. He simply prays that he would turn back to the word. He'd come back to the Bible and be filled with it. To trust God in and through it. It's what he says, he uses the word, that counsels him. Basically, that it comforts him. Even in those difficult times. Because it does comfort because it reminds us of the promises of God. That whatever happens in life, however difficult and however sad, God's got you in his hand if you trusted Jesus. You're safe. Forever. Let's move on. Last one, very quickly. Verse 25 through to verse 32. I've titled this, Strengthened by the Word to Run. It's a bit of an Olympic thing, isn't it? We're running times. So let's strengthen by the word to run. And two words sum up this section. We're going to run through it really quickly. Two words, suffering, but also grace. Suffering and grace. The first half of this little section, verse 25 onwards, simply shows that in the midst of difficult times, the word of God provides our only hope. Look at verse 25. Follow with me. I am laid low in the dust, it says. Preserve my life according to your word. Now what he's saying is that he's saying life might not kind of be removed from, we, we, we will suffer. But the promise of the covenant, the promise of God in his word is that those who will trust him will be eternally preserved. We will get to heaven. Look at verse 28. This is how bad it's got for him. My soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Again, when you face a difficult time, what do you normally pray? I am prone to praying something like, please take this difficult thing from me. Now, it isn't wrong to pray that. Please hear that. It's not wrong to pray that. But the priority in our prayers, like the songwriter here, must be prayers that say, God, give me the strength to get through this, to endure, to keep going, to trust your promises and your eternal provision that you will take me to heaven. And in understanding that, what happens? You're still going through the difficult time. You're still suffering, perhaps. But it means you can face that suffering, not running from it, or getting bitter about it, but rather being strengthened by God to go through it to heaven. When times are tough, you can feel really low, can't you? And that's why he says in verse 25, I'm laid low in the dust. His face is on the ground. He's like, oh, this is terrible. And the song says, that's not your place as a Christian. You should not be in the dust. Laid low. The song says that when you turn to God in his words, it will keep you from being deceived by suffering and saying, that's it, it's, all, it's overwhelming. That's verse 29. We're to choose to be faithful to, to in and through suffering. That's verse 30. We're to hold fast to God and his word. That's verse 31. So why? Verse 32, we can run. We can run God's way in and through this life to heaven. God doesn't promise to remove suffering. But in his word, that is the pathway through suffering. It takes us from being laid low in the dust to being able to run 
and enjoy life, to know blessing and happiness until we meet God face to face in heaven. Now my prayer is that as we look through this psalm together this summer, you will, like the songwriter, begin to understand God's word better, the Bible better. I hope it will fill your hearts with God's word, but I hope and pray that you begin to delight in God's word. Why? Well, there's only one reason. We delight in God's word so that we might delight in God, knowing his blessings through the word, which will equip us for all that is to come before you meet him face to face. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, the Bible. Thank you for this amazing chapter. We've looked at a bit of it this morning, and particularly for the kids here today. We pray that they would be able to take some of this home to remember that the way to heaven with you is to walk in obedience to your word, trusting in Jesus day by day by day. Amen.